From the high desert, here in Jacksonville, Florida, and somehow at the same time, Vancouver, Washington, Coast to Coast Mysteries, with myself, Josh Cannon, and I am joined with Mike Brown. Do you like this uh, this Coast to Coast AM opening, Mike? How do you feel about it? Yeah, it's a nice opening. It really is. I mean, d- d- isn't it putting you in the mood to talk about paranormal stuff which we're not talking about at all on this particular episode (laughs) um definitely does that's cool for sure how are you doing mike i'm worried about you (laughs) i'm doing okay i just i'm just dealing with a lot of stuff lately um ridiculous schedule for school for some reason all my professors were like you know what Let's have like all a ton of essays and like fucking tests and shit like all due at the same fucking time and projects. Last two weeks of school, I I, I feel like Billy Billy Joel, you know, in that song Pressure. No, because I I think Pressure is totally the theme song for finals week everywhere for students. Yeah, because you know. Pressure! You know, it's just so much pressure. That literally almost sounded like the... That sounded like that whole thing. What you did just then. That was pretty cool. That's that's also kind of... You're pretty cool sometimes, Beavoth. So, dealing with that... I'm hoping I'm not getting sick or anything, because my mom... She has some like nasty cold or something I don't want to get. So I'm trying to stay away and trying to because I'm like, I can't get sick right now. I have too much to do. Um, and I went to my first NBA playoff game last night. Oh, cool. Uh, Blazers and Pelicans game two. And Blazers was lost. And it was a lot of just absolutely terrible officiating. It was one sided. It really pissed me off, and that might be why my voice is a little bit, uh, because, you know, when you go to a game, you know, like, ah, you know, let's go Blazers, you know, <laughs> Damn, <laughs> you're shouting defense do you and think that, it, so. Do you think it stung a little bit more that they lost to a, a group called the Penguins? The Pelicans. Pelicans. Do you think that stu- that made that loss just hurt that much no, more? No, no, no. What what made the loss hurt so much is that there was a lot of factors that were out of the team's control. When you're getting hosed by the officials at home, that's that really sucks. Why do you think especially that happened? in the playoffs? I don't know. I still don't know. I really don't know. The Pelicans should send the refs a thank you note because they're a big reason why they won that game. <laughs> It's so funny hearing you talk sports, Mike. It's like it's like you might as well just break into Chinese right now because like <laughs> it is so not a language that I speak or a thing that I care mm-hmm. about. But it, it and it's like it, it's like when you hear when you know that somebody's interested in that stuff, but you never hear them talk about it. It's like it's like you're busting out a foreign language on me right now. It's yeah. kind of funny hearing you yeah. talk about sports. Yeah. So that it was fun. It was a it was a 
it was a bittersweet experience. Um, I'm glad I went. I'm glad my friend uh, he bought a ticket for me and and we went together. But you know, now I'm I, glad I did it because it's it, it, there is nothing like playoff basketball. So that was pretty cool. No, I'm I'm doing good. I uh, even though Mike didn't ask yet again, I'm gonna tell him anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm doing good. I ju- I finally finished my. That freaking music video for Nightmare Inside You. Mike left and a very... congratulations. Yes. You, it's a very excellent video. Thought it was, the production values were very high. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a pretty epic job. So nice job. Yeah, so thank you. You know what's funny, Mike? You, you comment on a lot of the videos that I put out. And your fucking comments always become the top comments in my videos. <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess you're like the voice of reason in the sea of madness that are my uh, comment sections on my videos. And people always look at your comment and go, yes, that is the one that I agree with the most. You Like, on my Apple video, yours is the highest uh, comment. On my uh, Channel Awesome video, yours is like the highest comment. Like, a lot, a lot of your comments are like the top <laughs> voted ones. Well, so. uh, on, uh, I think on the game from Mars video that he did on Channel Awesome, my comment was the highest rated comment at one point. So, yeah. yeah so anyway, um, that video's out. But you know, anytime you're a creative person and you finish a big creative endeavor, there's always this like soul sucking void where you don't have that thing to work on anymore, and you literally like have to rebuild again from scratch. It's like Say you worked on a painting or a book for like a year or something and you finally... Yeah, that'll be me if I ever do finish even just volume one of this book I'm going to work on. That will be me. It would just be like, oh, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. But now I got to prepare for something else. Yeah. But thankfully, because I'm going to start working on volume one this summer, I'm going to have, after that period of time, I'm going to have like immediate work to do because I'm going to be going... Uh, back to college, so I'm going to have the, you know, fall term, which is funny. They call it fall, but it starts in August. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be, now that I'm done with the video, now we're going to shift gears and focus on actually playing out more and actually going on little tours and stuff, because our goal is to really, you know, get this band out and in front of as many people as possible. So if you listen to this podcast and you're around the Florida or South Southern area and you would like Dancing with Ghosts to come to your town, just let me know somewhere on the internet and and we could quite possibly make that happen, because we want to go where there are already fans and instead of wasting money and time going to a empty venue where no one's ever heard of us and you know we 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 might sell a few t-shirts from the whole thing you know and here we wasted days of driving and travel expenses and stuff so i i I could go on a long tangent about how i think the old-fashioned model for touring bands are is outdated as fuck but we won't do that um we have a a very um uh a large, a wide variety. I don't know what I'm trying to say. We have a very varied show today, I guess I should say. We got an Unsolved Mysteries case, uh, an Art Bell tribute, and um, because of our lovely Patreons, uh, we are going to be discussing a, a topic that they wanted us to discuss, which is the Twilight Zone. Um, I can pretty much... That's scary, man. You can't just bust that on me out of nowhere. But like, Come on, you gotta prepare me next time. But yeah, I am uh, more than assuming that Mike's going to have to cover that one mostly because I don't I don't really <laughs> know a whole lot about um, about that. So uh, the first case is Mike's pick and is a case of Patrick Michael Mitchell. Michael Mitchell 
first off, it's a guy with uh, three first names. You know that his name is is Patrick Michael Mitchell. Right off the bat, he's suspicious. Anybody like that, I'm I'm, I'm automatically suspicious. You're either a hair a hairdresser or you're like a a, a, a shady person if you have three first names. <laughs> so uh, he also has aliases as Johnny Grant, Patty Mitchell, Roger Langfield, Michael Garrison. And Richard Joseph Landry, of course, once again. And also Long Dong Silver. They don't mention that here, but, um, <laughs> you know. So, Patrick Mitchell is the leader of the infamous Stopwatch Gang of Canada. He later became known as one of the most skillful bank robbers in the United States. Mitchell was believed to have made off with over $3 million during a 15-year spree of robbing banks. Every robbery, he would wear comic masks, such as Ronald Reagan... Richard Nixon and Bozo the Clown. When did that start, by the way? Like, when did the one whole... of these things is not like the other? <laughs> you got Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, and then Bozo the Clown. I, it's I, like, ah, oh, we couldn't find the LBJ mask. You know, there wasn't any other president masks. They were sold out. It was either Bozo the Clown or Taft, and we just went with Bozo the Clown because you know none of us like President Taft. I don't understand that though. That's become like a, a, a that was like an old like uh, bank robbery cliche. It seemed like in like eighties and nineties movies, like they come in and they're wearing like presidential. Well, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking of Point Break. <laughs> I just like I don't know like did this guy start that whole like meme of uh, you know the presidential mask bank robber I mean it's I, I don't why why a president face mask I don't I don't get that like the devil's in the details with me I always question these small little <laughs> things like why well I mean it's better than wearing a clear plastic bag or oh, yeah. a, a beer box where you're only looking through the little tiny groove you know the little tiny space. Maybe it's because the the presidential face mask at least kind of looks like the face of a person, so it doesn't draw as much attention from a, from far away. Yeah, if you you walked in with Ninja Turtle masks on or something. <laughs> yeah, everyone would pretty much be like, "Oh shit, we're about to get robbed." But you walk in, and you know, maybe out of the corner of your eye, it doesn't really catch your but attention. But they're pretty over exaggerated, though. Yeah, the mask usually. Mister Gorbachev, give me all your money, Reagan <laughs> mad. Reagan mad. So I, mean, I, I was expecting what would really be crazy is they show up wearing like a Michael Myers mask and and uh, some guy's wearing a Jason Voorhees hockey mask and then somebody else is, walks in with leather face mask on and chainsaw. Pinhead. <laughs> That'd be cool as shit, but scary at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and then they have like a, a kid who's dressed as Chucky. <laughs> you just want to watch horror movies right now, Mike. <laughs> I have a feeling that's where this is going. So in 1983, he was convicted of bank robbery and sentenced to 20 years in prison. However, on May 9th, 1986, he escaped from prison with Johnny Salazar Stewart and another prisoner. The three men were able to escape without setting off any alarms, and they changed into civilian clothing and walked off the facility. A girlfriend of one of the prisoners picked them up, falsely believing that they were free on a weekend furlough. The third prisoner was soon captured in Atlanta, in, in Atlanta, Georgia, but Mitchell and Stewart eluded authorities. It is believed that while they were on the run, the two stayed in motels, planning robberies. Now, the reenactment of this is done quite well, because the guy they asked to play Patrick Michael Mitchell was almost a dead ringer. So, I felt they did a good job there. But Patrick Michael Mitchell, when you see photos of this guy, he's the Kenny Loggins. 
of bank robbers. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> he 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 looks very much like Kenny Loggins, and he could woo a woman in the way that perhaps Kenny Loggins could. He was into cooking. He was, uh, you know, an athletic guy. He apparently took this uh, prescription Retin A, which uh, yeah. maintains some kind of youthfulness in you, or supposedly was supposed uh -huh. to. I haven't heard anything about that Retin A, but um, this guy was very big on physical appearance. You know, he was like the metrosexual of bank robbers. Um, it's um, it's kind of weird, and because it, it, it's like, I don't know. Like, those two things don't really go together, you know? Usually, no. if you're a bank robber, you could kind of care less about your physical appearance and being this, um, you know, dynamo to... Uh, to I'm surprised they haven't made a movie based on this yeah, guy. Yeah, I know. I kind of thought that, too. I was like, this would make a really interesting movie, actually, you know? Because, I mean, you know, he's got the good looks that Hollywood always looks for with this kind of shit, you know? If, yeah. If the person's good looking, it's like all, it's like that, uh, you remember hearing about that one inmate whose picture went viral, he was like the hot, the hot prisoner or whatever? No, I don't remember that, but yeah, I would not be surprised. Yeah, it's like he, this, this, this sit, uh, I almost feel like it was in Florida, which would make a lot of sense. They released this guy's mugshot, and you know, they do it for every prisoner, but this guy had like really good bone structure and really pouty lips and blue eyes and everyone was calling him the hot like in inmate or prisoner or whatever. This <laughs> this this dude because of his looks had it set up to where when he got out of prison he already had a manager, he had like con modeling contracts. He had wow. like all these people that wanted this guy to uh, you know, model for them. All because of this picture that went viral on this um, this this uh, jail this jail's Facebook page or this like county sheriff's <laughs> Facebook. It was crazy. It just shows you how much uh, society values physical appearance, which is just kind of a sad thing. But it's kind of human nature. Yeah. It, it so I'm just. Yeah, can you imagine if he he just walks in the and starts robbing banks while singing Kenny Loggins songs? <laughs> yeah, like I'm alright. Don't nobody worry about me. I'm gonna rob your bank. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then you're gonna watch me flee. I'm alright. <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> then you're gonna watch me flee. <laughs> oh, fuck. Man, Mike, you that you were on fire with that one. Didn't he do that song Key Largo? I don't know if Down he did that in one. Key Largo. I don't know. All those like all those eighties like he did Danger Zone. Oh yeah, obviously. That was like in my opinion, that was his best song, but uh no, he did Footloose. Anyway, yeah, so this guy, he looks like Kenny Loggins, and he's... Singing Footloose while he's just running out the door. <laughs> I got a Footloose! 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 All right, so uh, in, in the fall of 1987, the two escapees began planning a bank robbery in Gainesville, Florida. Mitchell rented a storage unit that had a perfect view of both the bank that they intended to rob and the bank's armored car company. He pretended to load and unload boxes while watching the day-to-day -day operations of the armored car employees. Meanwhile, Stewart was sent to the bank account to scout the interior. At 8.10 a.m. on December 14, 1987, Mitchell called the police and made a bomb threat. This threat distracted the officers in the area of the bank. At 8.22 a.m., the armored car employees arrived at the bank. The money they, money they deliver increases the bank's deposits to over $300,000. At 8.25 a.m., Mitchell and Stewart break the glass doors of the bank and enter. They demanded the money be delivered by the armored cars. 
After receiving the money from the tellers, the two leave the bank. Mitchell also leaves behind a bag that he claims has a bomb inside. The bomb was fake, but it gave the two men plenty of time to escape. In total, they made off with nearly $500,000. Two months after the robbery, Stewart was arrested and charged with armed robbery. He was convicted of the crime and is serving a 40-year sentence. A year after the robbery, Mitchell's Cadillac was found abandoned in a storage facility in Tallahassee, Florida. However, he remains on the run. He has been cited in Texas, Georgia, and Alabama. Police believe that there were two distinct characteristics about Mitchell, that he may be taking experimental medication to retard his aging process, and that he is known for being an accomplished gourmet cook. The case is featured as a part of the January 23rd, 1991 episode. It's on episode 16 of season three on Amazon Prime. And he was captured. In 1994, he was arrested after robbing a bank in South Haven, Mississippi, and pleaded guilty to two bank robberies. He was then convicted of both and sentenced to a grand total of 60 years imprisonment. Mitchell died of lung cancer in prison in 2007 at the age of 64. Oh, wow. I guess that all that uh, all those uh, steroids retin-A. or retin-A or whatever he was taking uh, for to, to retard his health, as the article put it, um, di- didn't uh, do him any favors in the longevity department. Nope. And I'm going to read this uh, article from the Los Angeles Times about his capture because it's got a little more details. By many accounts, including his own, Patrick Michael Mitchell was the country's best bank robber. His finely tuned stopwatch gang snatched millions from banks across the United States and Canada. He estimates that he took part in more than 100 heists from 1980 until his most recent capture early last year, in 1994. He takes pride in the the precision with which gang members carried out the crime in less than two minutes. The three bandits were also known as the presidential robbers because they often wore masks of ex-presidents. We wouldn't rob a bank for $10,000, Mitchell said during an interview with the Associated Press. We always shot for anything over 100000 and if we thought it would be less, we didn't go. Neither he nor prosecutors would estimate how much he stole over the years, but agreed the tally was several million dollars. The money went fast for cars, planes, gambling, tricks, gambling trips to Vegas, and frequent changes of address. Mitchell, born in Ottawa, Canada, even claims to have given away $300,000 in two years. You can spend it in a year. Isn't that terrible, said Mitchell? But when you're on the run, you pay $3,000 or $4,000 a month for an apartment. You eat in restaurants. You buy two or three cars a year because you're always leaving cars behind. They really do need to make a movie about this. Jeez, that's crazy. I never thought about any of that stuff. Tucked among his fast-paced heights were two, heists were two prison terms in Arizona and Canada, both interrupted by escape. His exploits have been the subject of a book, The Stopwatch Gang, and a number, a number of television documentaries. So they made documentaries, but they haven't made a feature film. Mitchell's stopwatch cohorts have finished serving their sentences. While they were behind bars, he continued to rob and travel around the world. But the man once on the FBI's 10 most wanted list now faces more than a half century behind bars. His cycle of rob, party, capture, and escape abruptly ended on February 22, 1994, because of an alert police chief in South Haven, a quiet northeast Mississippi suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. Mitchell had spent weeks preparing to rob a bank there. This bank my sister could have robbed. It was an easy, easy bank. There was nothing to it, but I was too much in a hurry. He had to move his plans up after being featured on America's Most Wanted. And he also had encountered on local lawmen being wise to an old trick. Mitchell telephoned police and threatened to blow up City Hall. Certain this would divert attention while he robbed the bank. The ploy had worked before. 
There's only nine banks in the whole town, and the police chief sent a police car to every one of them, Mitchell said. I was in and out in about 45 seconds. I scooped up the money bags and left, but the police were waiting. Maybe because they saw the Unsolved Mystery segment and were like, oh, this guy likes to call in fake bomb threats. <laughs> Already facing prison for earlier bank heists in Arizona and Canada, Mitchell was sentenced on October 13th, 1994 to an additional 30 years for, Miss for the Mississippi holdup. And on July 6th, an additional five years were tacked on for an escape attempt on October 24th, 1994. Mitchell, a slightly built man who wears a trim beard and his salt and pepper hair combed back, enjoys his reputation as a crafty bank robber. When I got arrested, I didn't realize I was that famous, he said. People were telling me that there would be cameras outside the courtroom. And while I've been robbing all these banks, I didn't know that they knew it was me. Turns out they were putting my picture in the papers the next day. Assistant U.S. Attorney Charles Spillers said Mitchell's luck ran out in Mississippi. He was the most successful bank robber in the country, and he was foiled here. He spent his life conning and manipulating people, but when he tried to con the jury here, that didn't work either. U.S. Marshal David Cruz of Oxford said Mitchell enjoys using charm and wit to con his way out of trouble. He calls him a career criminal always looking for a way to beat the system. Patty wants people to think he's a nice guy, but nice guys don't put guns in people's faces and they don't rob banks, Cruz said. But there is a rare quality to him, he admitted. He has a certain kind of old-style integrity, a criminal ethic that you don't see much these days. For one, Mitchell claims to have never fired a weapon during a robbery. At no time was I prepared to shoot anybody. I've never had a bullet in the area of the chamber. That's interesting. I wonder if that affected Mitchell... his sentence at all. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> Mitchell recently transported from was transported from Mississippi to a federal prison in Atlanta, and he said in an interview before his transfer that his escaping days are over. Cruz is not so sure. They need to keep both eyes on this one. 120 seconds a minute, 48 hours a day. And he did not escape again. Yeah, fun fact, Gainesville, where uh, that first robbery took place on the Unsolved Mystery segment, that's like literally an hour away from, from where I live in Jacksonville. And um, that's where I got my first and only DUI, too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's a very, like, it's a small college town. And we, we actually thought about playing, uh, you know, our first quote-unquote out-of-town show at Gainesville because it's so close to Jacksonville. But uh, it's, it's kind of a little pissant town. It's not really that much. So, yeah. So what is this? The seven degrees of Gainesville, Florida? <laughs> Dude, there's a lot of cases that have taken place in Gainesville. Well, there's like a Gainesville campus slayer at one point, wasn't there? On one of the Unsolved Mysteries that we talked about. Maybe. I, like. I think that was like a thing. I wonder what led him to do this. Like, what, 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 why was, why did he form a gang and start robbing banks? Maybe it's because he just had a lifestyle that he couldn't afford or something. And in order to continue to live that lifestyle he just started, decided to start robbing banks i mean it's a very interesting thing i want to track down one of those tv documentaries about the stopwatch gang and watch it one of these days yeah if i was to make any kind of guess on this i would say that this is one of those guys that wanted to live a a more elaborate and illustrious lifestyle than what he was yeah, a life of luxury yeah than what he was able to actually afford and so you know he he started robbing banks much i think maybe he started he robbed he robbed his first bank got hooked and then just continued doing it yeah i mean i'm sure it is an addiction of some sort to you know and if you keep getting away with it yeah 
And I mean, you know, like it's it's kind of like making a YouTube video for us. You know, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. You you know prepare for it. You practice what you're gonna do, and then then it's showtime, and you finally do it, and you put it out, and it's and it's done, and you get this rush of like, ah, I did it. You know, that was uh, you know so much planning, and here it is, and all that. You know, and but but the thing that we do isn't doesn't involve putting guns in people's faces, real guns at least. No. Um, and, and, and stealing uh, money. But um, but it's interesting that he had a code of ethics and that he never even had a bullet in the chamber. Well, yeah, that's that's why in jail, like, you the know... The entire time. Uh, uh, it's, it's funny, like, a, a lot of these guys who end up in jail have some kind of code of ethics, but just certain things are okay and certain things aren't. That's why I think pedophiles and, you know, murderers of their mom and all that shit are the most hated people in prison because those people are seen as having no ethics. So they're always well. Like, I'm pretty sure uh, Screlly doesn't have a lot of ethics either, and he's gonna have a hard time. <laughs> Did you hear Martin Screlly, the pharmaceutical guy? He got transferred. He's getting transferred to a to a federal prison. He's not getting the cushy private country club prison like he thought he was he was gonna get. Is this? He's not getting that term. Is this the guy who uh, made the HIV medication like super expensive? I think I might be that guy. But I know he's a pharmaceutical, you know, there's this whole drama with the pharmaceutical guy. Yeah, Pharmaceuticals. I, I can't keep up with all this shit. It's too much. I'm only mentioning it because I mentioned it on the radio this morning. That's, that's it. Oh. <laughs> all right, moving on. Um, recently, as of like last Friday, Mike actually notified me of this. Um, one, of, one of my favorite like late night radio shows, Coast to Coast AM, um, the original host and creator of the show, Art Bell, actually passed away. On Friday the 13th. Which sucks. Um, I, I honestly, and you can, you know, you can ask Mike this. Well, hell, I'll ask Mike since he's right here. Well, I mean, think about it. Like, it, it's, it's, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right word for it. But I mean, the fact that he passed away on Friday the 13th does seem like it, it does tie into the whole supernatural Right type of stuff yeah, that he talked it's, about. It's in line with you know that with the kind of stuff they talked about on the show and the kind of the belief systems on there and stuff. And uh, Art Bell was just a really great host, and um, I made like a little um, tribute to him that I um, recorded yesterday. Um, just kind of give you a little rundown of his life and his start in you know getting into the radio business and all that. And uh, I'm gonna go ahead and play that now, and um, then we'll we'll reminisce on uh, any kind of memories we have of listening to Coast to Coast AM. On Friday, April 13th, 2018, we lost a very important and talented figure in late night talk radio. Of course, I am talking about Art Bell, the creator and original host of the show Coast to Coast AM. Art Bell was born in Jacksonville, North Carolina in 1945. That's right, Jacksonville, North Carolina, unlike my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida. I knew we were kindred spirits. Bell was always interested in radio and at the age of 13 became a licensed radio operator. Bell held a top U.S. Federal Communications Commission radio broadcast license known as an Amateur Extra Class License. This license permits privileges on all amateur radio bands. His call sign, which is a unique designation for a transmitter radio station, was W6OBB. 
Bell served as a medic in the Vietnam War and in his free time operated a pirate radio station at Amarillo Air Force Base. Art would go out of his way to play anti-war music not otherwise heard on the U.S. Armed Forces Radio Network. After leaving military service, he remained in Asia where he lived on the Japanese island of Okinawa. He worked as a disc jockey for KSBK, which was the only non-military English language station in Japan. While there, he set a Guinness World Record by staying on the air for 116 hours and 15 minutes. That's like all of our podcasts we've ever done in one session. That's crazy. The money raised there allowed Bell to charter a Douglas DC-8, fly to Vietnam, and rescue 130 Vietnamese orphans stranded in Saigon at the war's end. They were eventually brought to the United States and adopted by American families. Bell returned to the United States and studied engineering at the University of Maryland. He dropped out and returned to radio as a board operator and chief engineer, and had the opportunity to be on the air a few times. For several years, he worked behind and in front of the microphone. After a period of working in cable television in 1986, the 50,000-watt KDWN in Las Vegas, Nevada, offered Bell a five-hour time slot in the middle of the night. Syndication of his program to other radio stations began in 1993. During most of the 1970s, Bell was a rock music disc jockey before he moved into talk radio. In 1978, he got his start in talk radio with the political call-in show West Coast AM. Ten years later, in 1988, Art Bell and Alan Corbeth renamed the show Coast to Coast AM. Bell abandoned the political talk format in favor of topics like gun control and conspiracy theories. This change saw a major boost in his overnight ratings. The show's focus then shifted again after the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Many people in the media did not want to be blamed for inciting anti-government actions. So after the format change, Bell began discussing fringe topics like the paranormal, the occult, UFOs, proto-science, and pseudoscience. In a 1997 article in the Washington Post, Bell was named America's highest-rated late-night radio talk show host. At its peak, Coast to Coast AM was syndicated on more than 500 radio stations and claimed 15 million listeners a night. Fans regarded Bell as a master showman, noting that he called his show, quote, absolute entertainment and expressly said that he did not necessarily accept every guest or caller's claims, but only offered a forum where they could not be openly ridiculed. Bell was one of only a few talk show hosts who did not screen incoming calls. His calm attitude, patient questions, and ability to tease substance from nebulous statements of callers and guests gave his show a relaxed yet serious atmosphere. This earned him praise from those who declare that the paranormal deserves a mature outlet of discussion in the media as well as the approval of those simply amused by the nightly parade of bizarre, typically fringe topics. Art didn't simply talk about the paranormal, however. Over the years, Art Bell has interviewed many legendary people such as Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, George Carlin, Dean Koontz, X-Files creator Chris Carter, Leonard Nimoy, Dan Aykroyd, former Luftwaffe pilot Bruno Stola, and even the man for which this whole podcast is made possible, Robert Stack. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you heard me correctly. Art Bell interviewed Robert Stack. 
I can't find this interview anywhere online, but I can only imagine how awesome of an interview that would have been. Like two awesome, amazing voices trying to out-awesome each other. Over the years, Bell would retire and return to the show he helped build for various reasons. The first retirement happened on October 13, 1998 due to, quote, an event. A threatening, terrible event occurred to my family, which I could not tell you about. Because of that event and succession of other events, what you're listening to right now is my final broadcast on the air, end quote. Hilly Rose filled in after Bell's departure. Bell returned on October 28, 1998, asserting that the brief departure was brought on by threats made against his family. On May 29, 1999, Bell explained that this retirement was due to an allegation made by hosts of WWCR shortwave radio that Bell had paid to cover up a criminal indictment. The facts of the matter became public knowledge in 2000 when it was revealed that an actual criminal indictment was filed against a person who had assaulted a member of Bell's family. Because of the nature of the crime, Bell had wanted to keep this matter private. Ted Gunderson, the former head of the Los Angeles FBI and the host at WWCR Shortwave Radio, had accused Bell of the crime. Bell responded by taking legal action against Gunderson as well as the hosts and stations. The action was resolved in a settlement in 2000. On April 1st, 2000, Bell again announced his retirement. He said that the event would occur on April 26th of that same year but offered no details other than expressing intentions to, quote, resolve a family crisis, end quote. On April 11, 2000, Mike Siegel was introduced as the new host of Coast to Coast AM, taking over on April 27th to an estimated audience of 22 million listeners. It was later explained that Bell had left to deal with the aftermath of the kidnap and sexual assault of his son. Brian Lepley, a substitute teacher, was convicted of sexual assault and attempted transmission of HIV and was sentenced to 10 to 25 years. Bell returned to Coast to Coast AM in February 2001. Bell noted that since his departure, the show had lost a number of affiliates, commercial content had risen to an unbearable level, and Siegel had taken the program in, quote, a different direction, end quote, of which Bell disapproved of. Bell retained some authority over the program as its creator and felt his return was necessary. On October 23, 2002, Bell announced that he would retire due to reoccurring back pain, which was the result of a fall from a telephone pole during his youth. Bell was replaced by George Norrie as weekday host of Coast to Coast AM on January 1, 2013. It was also said that Barbara Simpson would host weekends and that Bell planned to be an occasional guest host for Norrie. Bell returned in September 2003 as a weekend host, replacing Barbara Simpson and Ian Punnett as host of the Saturday and Sunday evening broadcasts. In June 2005, he scaled this schedule back, calling it a semi-retirement, and hosted only the last two Sundays of every month. Bell went back to hosting every weekend show as his schedule permitted after his wife Ramona's death a few months later. On July 1st, 2007, Bell announced his retirement, stating that he wished to spend more time with his new wife and daughter. He made it explicitly clear that, unlike the circumstances surrounding the previous retirements, this decision was an entirely positive and joyful one that he would not disappear completely, announcing an intention to occasionally substitute for other hosts and host special shows. On July 20th, 2015, Bell returned with his new show, Midnight in the Desert, 
The show aired on the Internet Dark Matter Digital Network and on 45 stations, 20 of which signed on before the show started. This happened from 9 p.m. to midnight. He also started transmitting on shortwave radio on WTWW at 5.05 MHz as well, if that means anything to anybody out there. On December 11th, 2015, Bell posted what would be his final retirement message via his Facebook page. He cited safety concerns for his family by saying, quote, If one of them were harmed because of what I love doing, my life would be over, end quote. Throughout the fall, Bell reported several incidents where an unknown number of armed trespassers came onto his property, sometimes firing gunshots. These events have been said to occur during or around the time of his broadcasting. This announcement came a mere five months after the start of his most recent show, Midnight in the Desert. Art Bell died on April 13, 2018, at age 72 in his home in Pahrump, Nevada. An autopsy was scheduled for the following days to determine the cause of his death. Bell had suffered from health problems in the previous years. He posted on his website in July 2016 that he was hospitalized for pneumonia and revealed at the time that he suffered from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. George Norrie, host of Art's show, announced his death and stated, quote, Art and I were not that close. We had our differences, but he was one of those instrumental in me being where I am now. Which is kind of one of the most like non-sentimental things you could say about another person. Yeah, I didn't really like the guy that much, but, uh, you know, because of him, I am where I am. So uh, thanks there, buddy. I don't know. George Noy for you. All right, so I, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. Uh, Mike, what, what are any kind of memories you have of listening to Coast to Coast AM? See, I didn't listen to a lot of Coast to Coast AM, but um, I do have some memories associated with it because my dad would listen to it. And I went, I went truck driving with him. Because, you know, when you ride, when you drive cross-country uh, and delivering loads on on truck, on a truck, you can be driving really late at night. So I, I remember listening to one episode with him that definitely did, I, I, I this one has always stuck with me. And, it, and I don't even remember exactly everything about it but it, it was like this government sort of cover-up kind of stuff and it was something to do like there were it was in the they were talking about some mountain range somewhere in the pacific northwest or somewhere in california and how there were these people were hiking and they ended up seeing an entire mountainside just open up and seeing like you know all this kind of sort of like top secret military base type of craziness. Oh wow! And so that that one always stuck with me. And that that's really the that's really my only memory I have of that show is that one episode that I heard one one time because well, I was just like, looks like I over wow. I, I overestimated Mike's interest in Coast to Coast AM a little bit. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, I mean because I I just. I, I mean, I heard about it, but I mean, at that point in time, you know, because it was when I was younger and, and in up 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 there and in my brain, you know, where my brain is, or just my brain, period, in my brain, things weren't really clicking as well as they are now. So I wasn't really, I, I didn't really listen to a lot of stuff like that and so on and so forth. And 
I mean, it was super late at night, and I, you know, I, I wasn't really staying up at, as late because my parents wouldn't let me stay up that late. So, well, I didn't really have a lot of options to be able to listen to it. I, I remember really think about my experiences listening to it on other things. My experiences of listening to Coast to Coast AM is, um, it's like every time I got done playing a show when I was like a teenager and I could, you know, drive and. I'd go play a show with whatever band I was in, and on my way home, it would be really late at night. I was just got done playing a show. I turn on the radio, and there was no better sound than hearing Art Bell somewhere in time and hearing his voice as he's talking about UFOs, time travelers, little fairies and pixies who who are invisible to people, and you know, I mean, just it was just so interesting listening to it and um, the various callers they would have on there and how crazy some of them were and how, you know, you'd have people saying that they are time travelers from the year 2063 and they, you know, make all these predictions and just Art Bell's attentiveness with them and, and not laughing at them immediately and, you know, actually listening what to what they had to say. And, and uh, I just... Um, and then, like, even to this day with George Norrie hosting Coast to Coast AM, I think he's a good host, too, although I think Art Bell was better. Um, I, I get home from my gigs, and I if I take a shower or anything like that, I always put on Coast to Coast AM. And um, to this day, I don't know, it's kind of like a friend, you know, to me at night when you're alone and you, and you don't have anything else going on and you put it on. It's like, um, it's, it's really like a special experience that... Um, only radio can really give you, I guess, podcasts too at this point. But um, so I want to mention some um, some kind of like uh, I guess more memorable phone call call in moments that Art Bell um, took on his show on September eleventh, nineteen ninety seven. Bell took a call from a frantic man claiming to be an ex Area fifty one employee who grew progressively more upset as the call went on, culminating in the show in the show going temporary, temporarily off the air because of a satellite failure. The gentleman allegedly called back on April 28, 1999, admitting that the original call was fraudulent. However, the second caller's voice, tone, and mannerisms have called into question whether this was the same person. Many believe this was a cover-up from the government as the original call was cut off. Se uh. 17 years later, comic book writer Brian Glass called in to Jimmy Church's fade to black, claiming to be the man behind the call. This incident formed the incident formed the basis of the song uh, Fap D Ode by the rock band Tool, which features the interview dubbed in over frantic drumming and buzzing sound. And actually, if you're a fan of Tool, their album Lateralis, uh, the last song on there, yeah, they, they do play that, and it's very menacing, the call. It's, it's very freaky. I mean, the guy talks about, like, Area 51 and you know, seeing these beings and all that, and it's pretty uh, ominous. Um, huh. Another call, another interesting personality was this J.C. Webster III, or just J.C. as he <laughs> was known. Um, Webster began calling in 1996 and has since been on the air over 50 times. He purports to be a Baptist revival preacher and believes Bell to be the devil's mouthpiece. <laughs> <laughs> he has continued to call George Norrie and guest hosts. Although some listeners have expressed a disbelief that someone like J.C. could exist, Bell and George Norrie have repeated their beliefs that Webster is real and neither is a put-on nor a plant. Um, huh. On February 2005, Bell received a call from a person calling himself Oscar, proclaiming to be the son of Satan. 
Oscar has since called George Norrie, but disappeared after a June 2007 on-air confrontation with J.C. Webster III. <laughs> this guy, this guy is probably the the Oscar guy is probably mentally ill. Probably. In March 2005, a man. Because come on, if you're the son of Satan, you're not Oscar. <laughs> come on. I don't know. Um, I think it'll probably be Damien, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the devil, according to Southern Baptist teachings, he takes the form of a beautiful man, a beautiful, physically appealing person that you want to follow and you want to get sucked in. And then... So like Sam Neill. And then before you know it, <laughs> he reveals his presence, but by then it's too late. Satan's already got you. The devil's got you. He's a master of disguise. Um, in March 2005, you could, you could really be a, a, a televangelist. Josh. God damn it, Mike! I'm trying to get through this March 2005 <laughs> thing. In March 2005, a man also called about disturbing events on Kwajalein and Johnston Atoll. About and you know, I guess these are islands or something. Um, uh-huh. well, an atoll is an atoll, but whatever. Don't be an. You're a real atoll, Mike. Don't be an atoll. <laughs> Um, so this man calls in uh, reporting about a weapon that only targeted certain people and could leave others unhurt. He indicated oh. he had indicated he had, he had been on both islands that are U.S. military only, and that these weapons had been tested in 1993. Bell lost the call. Oh. Bell lost the call after another voice came on the line with a click saying, "Shelton, terminate the call from A6." Bell, Whoa. <laughs> Bell tried to call the man back, but was unsuccessful. Wow. Yeah. Um. That does kind of that does kind of tie into some things I remember hearing. Like, um, the first thing I, I heard from the mouths of actual people who were in Panama at the time on the documentary "The Panama Deception." I think that's what it's called. I, I saw this documentary uh, for for a film class I was taking in, in Portland Community College. And I actually did, the director of the documentary Documentary was there and did a little speech, you know, Q&As type stuff. And we watched the movie. And I even got to hold the Oscar. Oh, cool. I wish I had a picture of it, but I don't. Because I had some old ass phone that didn't take pictures. So, um, <clears throat> but man, it, re- it definitely is solid gold, folks. It's heavy. And... I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but Josh, you know, I mean, not, not everybody's going to remember everything. I don't even remember everything we said, we talked about on this podcast. Because uh, apparently one of our uh, listeners, Eddie, he watched the documentary. And uh, we might talk about it sometime. I think it would be worth talking about. Because it ties in this whole sort of government sort of stuff and weaponry and whatever. I do believe they have weaponry that we don't know about. I, I firmly 100% believe that. Oh, yeah. I mean, for security uh, reasons, they're it, it, not going to in, in the Panama, Panama, if I could say that fucking word, documentary, there were these citizens from Panama, and they were talking about how the military showed up, and they shot people with lasers that lit them on fire. Jesus. It was a very chilling... Uh, part of the documentary like that that's that's clung really hard to my memory because you don't really hear that very often and that was like in the 90s so that does kind of tie into the whole oh they could target certain people 
uh, you know, maybe it was the laser weaponry. I mean, because the lasers can be really extremely precise. So you can shoot somebody with a laser, light them on fire, and, and somebody else will be okay because you're shooting them with a laser. Um, another thing I remember hearing is from a coworker of mine. I was when I was living in Oklahoma City, and I was working at a J.C. Penney, and he was in the military, and he was talking about how they were uh, experimenting with this uh, sound gun that could debilitate certain people with just frequencies of sound yeah i've actually heard about that one um and, and it makes sense and it's you know technology is going to continue to evolve you know so so people who come out and say i think the real problem is is when they are breaking government secrecy and they're revealing this yeah. shit on the radio for everyone to hear yeah oh to be honest though government should be taking keeping some of this stuff as secret as they are anyway and at the same time when it comes to the the war toys i really do feel we need to cut back on that i mean our infrastructure is crumbling beneath our feet we we should be using more of our funding to fund medical research all other kinds of stuff rather than just building more war toys well we got to keep the illuminati happy mike the people who really run <laughs> things behind the scenes the people who gives the president we got to keep the lizard people happy yeah, yeah the, the people who gives the, the president reptilians. his orders you know the, the like as as uh bill hicks a famous comedian uh well infamous comedian once said uh when when you become president they take you into the secret room and they they a projection screen comes down and they show the kennedy assassination from a different angle that no one's seen before and they they, uh, you know, they they play the movie and you see actually what happened, what really happened, and then they just say after the movie's over, any questions to the new president. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know that's 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 the whole deal, man. That's what happens. So you know you gotta gotta keep uh, the U.S. has to be the dominant world police, you know, because that's that's what keeps the Illuminati happy, apparently. Um, I'm, I'm joking, of course, I guess, in, unless they're listening and this is displeasing them, then I'm absolutely joking. Um, but yeah, I mean, Art Bell, man, like he, he, uh, he talked about this stuff for, you know, over 20 years. And I mean, the reason why he went, he finally went into deep retirement was because he was getting threats. Like he was getting people, uh, were shooting at his house with firearms so huh. you know you you fuck around in this field too long you're going to ruffle some feathers in a very real way and well, i mean that ties into other people uh don Devereux. you know we talked you, you you interviewed don well and, i mean even you know, he had death threats yeah. and things like that the guy from the was the florida ufo thing Oh, uh, we, uh, you got um, Danny, um, whatever his last name is, from the Withville, Kentucky UFOs. Yeah, Withville, Kentucky. That, that's that's like about. one of my, that's becoming, I think, my more favorite UFO segment, to be honest, since that stuff came out about the Allagash abductions. I think the Withville. I don't buy that, though. I really don't. Because that one guy is a disgruntled asshole who was just butthurt about how he wasn't, the other guys weren't listening to his plan. So I, I don't really... Well, in a, the, the other three are, it's three against one. In any case, it's it's the, the Withville, Kentucky uh, story and, and the the, D, the radio DJ, um, Danny, I forget his fucking last name. I'll just call him Danny Carey, which is the name of a guy <laughs> from another a band or something. Uh, 
he you know he was a radio DJ and he and he switched to the UFO format stuff and people started calling in and he started poking his nose around his local you know city and he actually took a picture of one and he had it on a roll of film and you know I won't go into the whole segment again even though it's a great segment um yeah I mean he had he had high level he had a government official they actually played the tape recording on unsolved mysteries of this government official saying you know listen son you need to keep your head out of this he goes they'll get you any way they can they'll put it on your doorknob on your steering wheel my son died of leukemia you know out of nowhere blah 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 and you know they'll they'll silence you any way they can and you know this guy was basically talking about biological warfare which is some scary shit because you can't necessarily track that to anybody so it's almost like if the government wants to silence you they will and you, there's nothing you can say there's no way you can prove that it was them you know it's not like they just go out and sloppily do a drive-by shooting and cap your ass in an old toyota no they they have a lot more sophisticated yeah. ways of silencing people so um you know but Art Bell, you know, he died at the age of 72, and, you know, it seems like it was natural causes, so I, I don't think that that necessarily happened to him. But still, it's interesting, though. I love talking about shit like this. It, it gives me goosebumps in a good way, I guess. Yeah, Whitfield. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking up. Danny Gordon. Danny Gordon, that's right. Danny Gordon of the Whitfield, Kentucky UFOs. That is a great case. We covered it. Go to episode nine of our uh, podcast. I mean, episode nine, as I'm looking back on our previous podcast... That, that should be like on our greatest hits album because we got in that episode, we're talking about the Whackers, one of the creepiest old, like one of the creepiest, like unsolved mysteries, harassment of uh, an old couple that you will ever hear. We talk about and it's still unsolved. Yeah. Cheaper, but we'll do. Uh, we talk about the UFO Odyssey, which is the Danny Gordon with Phil Kentucky UFO case. We talk about the tunnel robbers, which was an amazing segment. And we taught, finally, we ended with Whistleblown, which is one of my favorite bizarre murders ever of Bob, uh, Bob, was it Bob Box? Dave Box. Dave, Dave Box, yeah, yeah. Dave Box. Bob Barker? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, our next thing that we're going to be talking about is um, from one of our Patreons, Raphael. Um, he uh, wanted us to talk about um, the show Twilight Zone and what, uh, what were our thoughts on it. Before I get into that, though, if you want to become a Patreon and support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash uncoveringunexplainedmysteries. And um, if you kick in, I think it's like, what, 10 bucks a month, you get to, uh, you get to uh, order us around like this. And that's what's happening now. Um, you know, he, he wanted us to talk about it, so now we're going to talk about it. I, of course, can't contribute much to this. I know my dad really likes the show uh, Twilight Zone. From what I've seen of the Twilight Zone... It's like it's like the black mirror of uh, the 50s or 60s, you know, whenever Twilight Zone came out. It's it's really Yeah, the original series aired from 1959 to 1964, so you're close. Okay. So yeah, it's like it, the, sh the every episode I've seen, it's it's really To be honest, Black Mirror Mirror is Twilight yeah, Zone. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's it's the other way around. Yeah. I'm just trying um, to give a modern comparison to people who aren't familiar with Twilight Zone. Well, yeah, a lot a lot of a lot of people for the most part, are pretty, at least know of The Twilight Zone. All right, Mike, go off. Um, <laughs> the Twilight Zone is a series that, it, what's interesting is, I'm not as familiar with the original series. I'm more familiar with the 80s revival, uh, uh, specifically the first two seasons. And I'll, I'll get to those after I talk about, give my thoughts on the first original, you know, the 
the the first series with Rod Serling. Rod Serling pretty much became a household name with the Twilight Zone, and the the series is very revolutionary because it really did deal with a lot of touchy subjects, race, social issues, all other kinds of stuff like that. It also went pretty hard. I mean, in terms of like the content, the show for the time, they got away with a decent amount of stuff when it comes to the censors. But later in the later seasons, the censors caught up and the show really started to fall in terms of quality. Uh, and because the writers weren't really able to do as much because of the censors and so on and so forth. Now, I've only seen a handful of episodes of the original series. Uh, I have the original series of DVD, the complete definitive collection. Uh, I got it on eBay. It was a really good deal. It was like 30 bucks or something shipped. The box itself, the the cases are in kind of rough shape, but the discs are in pristine condition, and that's really all all you really need. I don't really care if the box and the and the case that the discs come in are kind of ratty looking. It doesn't matter. Um, the series. I remember there's a, there's a lot of different episodes that were considered classics. Uh, there was one Burgess Meredith. And he played this, uh, this, I think he was like, he was a bookworm. He really loved books. And he, what happened is something happened and, and he ended up being the last man on earth. And I'm looking up, uh, the, the name of the title and forgive my typing. Cause I have a new keyboard cause the Q key and my old one stopped working. It's called, uh, time enough at last. And this is, uh, yeah, it's from season one. So very early on, it had a iconic episode that a lot of people remember. And he was the only person alive after this atomic blast, you know, this nuclear nightmare. And he finally has time enough at last to go to the library. And, and he's alone and he, he was never had the time to read books and never had the time to do the things he likes to do. And now he's alone in the library. He has all the time in the world. And he spends all of his time collecting and setting up all these different books that he's going to read to make them last for the rest of his life. And then his glasses fall off and he looks for them and then he, and then he breaks them. So now he can't see and he can't read. It, it, did, did he then do that line? No, that's not fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because yeah. that, because now that I think about that, uh, I think I th there's some show I was watching. It might have been Family Guy or something like that, where they actually like they 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 parodied that line or they quoted that line. Yeah, something because the line is, yeah, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. <laughs> there was all the time I needed. It's not fair. It's not fair. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that like someone did like a, a send up of that, uh, which I thought uh, I did. I knew it must have been a reference to something, but I had no idea what it was referencing. But now now I uh, now I get it. I think it might have been Family Guy that made that reference. Yeah. Um, the show also featured a lot of uh, segments, uh, episodes that were based on stories written by classic authors like Charles Belmont, Ray Bradbury. Richard Matheson, and uh, they 
frequently used science fiction as a vehicle for for a social commentary, which was which I was saying is was pretty pretty controversial for that time. You didn't see a lot of TV shows that were really dealing with that kind of stuff in that era. So, I mean, there were themes that were featured on the Twilight Zone, included nuclear war, McCarthyism, you know, the communist, uh, the communism sort of thing, mass hysteria, uh, subjects that were usually avoided for primetime television, uh, the episodes such as The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, I Am the Night, Color Me Black, uh, the masks, the masks, I Dream of Genie, Mr. Denton on Doomsday, were allegories, parables, or fables that uh, reflected the moral and philosophical choices of the characters. And uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street was totally a take on McCarthyism, because this whole sort of like, oh, they're the alien. It's a, there's like aliens land, and that I think they end up replacing uh, some uh, some people in this neighborhood. So then all these sort of it basically becomes this whole sort of paranoia thing where it's like there's something wrong with the 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 certain people here, like the neighbors or whatever. Like they're looking for these monsters. Yeah, it's a it's a great great episode. Um, so then it was rebooted in the '80s. Yeah, it was rebooted in the '80s. Uh, yeah, I don't really want to give away the monsters of Maple Street. If you want to just watch that watch that episode. Yeah, it was rebooted in the '80s uh, in 1985. And Serling himself decided to sell his share of the series back to the network, uh, CBS, which allowed for a Twilight Zone revival. And they gave the new Twilight Zone a green light in 1984. And there are four episodes of the series that are remakes of episodes that aired in the original series. Night of the Meek, Shadow Play, The After Hours, Game of Pool, and Dead Woman's Shoes. Dead Woman's Shoes is an adaptation of Dead Man's Shoes. Uh, and there's no opening monologue during the title sequence. There's, there's a little bit of it around, like, in the beginning a little bit by a different guy, a different narrator, because Rod Sterling wasn't around. So there was Charles Aidman who did narration for uh, episodes from 85 to 87, and there was Robin Ward who did uh, narrated episodes for 88 and 89. Now, the theme music was actually composed by the Grateful Dead. Really? Yes. That's interesting. At least the main title was. What? Now, no, this isn't the, the original. The, That's the eight. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's, it's it's their different version of it. Oh, okay. I thought, yeah. I almost thought you meant the, the very original, but I was like, no, the Grateful Dead weren't around back then. No, no, no. The original theme music was not. That was by somebody else. That was... Uh, Smitty, Smitty Werbenman Jensen. <laughs> I, I'm just looking it up real quick. He was number one. Bernard Herman. Uh, that was a great theme. That guy was genius. Yes. Yes. But Grateful Dead, I, I, I have a soft spot for their version. Because it's got this sort of twangy guitar kind of thing going on. I never actually heard their version. And the first season debuted uh, in 1985. And it did pretty well. Critically and in terms of ratings, Wes Craven directed several episodes of the first season, uh, including Shatterday, A Little Peace and Quiet, Wordplay, and Chameleon. All Chameleon's eh, but Shatterday, A Little Peace and Quiet, and Wordplay are all fantastic episodes. Shatterday featured one of the first performances uh, on television or on camera by Bruce Willis. Oh, wow. Did he still have hair Shatterday, back then, I'm guessing? Yes, he did. 
Shattered is a really interesting uh, uh, episode. It deals with identity and something happens where, excuse me, Bruce Willis plays this character who's kind of a jerk. And all of a sudden he's he's at a bar and he's trying to call home his apartment to get a hold of somebody. And the phone rings and he answers the phone. Some other version of himself. And this other version of himself is much nicer. It isn't a total ass. And then it becomes this sort of battle about who's going to survive. Which is interesting. And, and the acting is, is quite good by Bruce Willis. Little Peace and Quiet's a good one, too. It's got uh, Melinda Dillon from uh, A Christmas Story. And she she's, has this family that's just extremely annoying. Like the, She has two kids that are always constantly yelling and screaming. Her, the father's not doing that much. Her husband's not much of a help. And she finds this locket somewhere. And it, when she, I think she finds it in her backyard. And, it, and, and when she says, quiet, everything freezes. And time stops. Everything is quiet. Well, this culminates in the climax, which is one of the most chilling climaxes I've seen in a Twilight Zone episode. Where one night, She's she's woken up. There's air raid alarms going off. the The TV I think is is, is uh, showing something. A news broadcast. The radio's on, and it's saying that nuclear war has begun. Like the the Russians have because this is in 1985. So the United States of Russia have started nuclear war. She walks outside, and she sees mi a missile, nuclear missile that's about to hit, and then she yells, "Quiet!" And then everything freezes. And it's just this chilling image of everybody just frozen solid. And there's people staring up at the missile. And she's the only person that's able to move around because everything is frozen in time. And if she said if she unfreezes it, everyone dies. That is pretty cool. Yeah, and wordplay I really liked because that one that one uh it really shows how terrifying it would be if all of a sudden everything that you know, especially when it comes to language, just completely deteriorates and just turns into something else. And uh, this one has an actor that I like, uh, Robert Klein. Annie Potts is also in this, uh, the Janine from Ghostbusters. And this one has a uh, Robert Klein plays this guy named Bill, and all of a sudden when he's trying to communicate with people around him, like everything's just all changing and his neighbors referring to his dog as an encyclopedia. Uh, he's trying to cope with all these new terms and things like this. There's some other younger salesman at his company telling him about, you know, you can't teach old dogs, new trumpets. You know, of course he's like, well, it doesn't make any sense. So he's this only guy who remembers what the, the English language used to be like. And then People are saying stuff like, let's go, instead of lunch, let's go uh, for dinosaur. And then what? his son then gets sick, and then he has to try to figure out what's going on. His, he doesn't understand what his wife is saying to him at all. And it's actually pretty terrifying. It's silly at first, but then it just becomes really scary because this whole, like, you don't understand the damn thing. That is, that's very interesting. You, you definitely can see where Black Mirror got a lot of their... It's like they're like a they're like a futuristic version of Twilight Zone. 
like Twilight Zone yeah. in the future, which I which I think is uh, I think that was how somebody was describing or them or they how they describe themselves or something like that anyway. So that's pretty yeah. cool. And so the episode the segment ends with with Robert Klein having to break out the uh, ABCs. And having to relearn all these different words, like a child's book about basic words. So he has to, he's, he he has to figure out everything again. Wow. That, so that was... yeah, that that's a really really good one. Another great one is Nightcrawlers, which is directed by William Friedkin, who uh, directed The Exorcist. And this one deals with this, there's this uh, Vietnam vet played by an actor named Scott Pollan. And he's got these, he already looks like he has issues or whatever. And he goes to this diner and he's talking about how he was, that he was doused with Agent Orange and all this other shit. And he was a part of this uh, group called the Nightcrawlers. And whenever he has these psychic abilities, like he wants a steak, he can just make it, man- he can make this steak manifest on the grill. And. If he falls asleep, he's trying not to fall asleep because each time he falls asleep, he ends up, his nightmares come to life. And since since he's a Vietnam vet, his nightmares involve uh, his time in Vietnam. So a lot of, you know, there's a bunch of people who are thinking like it's a bunch of bullshit or whatever. And so one of the diner patrons, I think it might have been the police officer. He eventually, because the police officer is trying to be like, hey, I'll give you a ride home. It's like, no, I'm fine. I, you know, I just want to get a hotel. And then what the Scott Paul ends up getting knocked out. And then that just causes just chaos, absolute chaos, because his nightmares come to life. And uh, there's all these ghost like shoulders that sh- soldiers show up. And they were responsible for a motel massacre that happened earlier at a, ho- a motel that Price, the character, had stopped by. And they start destroying vehicles. They got heavy uh, artillery. They're forcing their way into the diner. They kill a guy. They just start shooting everywhere. Yeah, it's and then eventually they kill uh, kill um, Scott Pollan's character, which is good because now we don't have. You know, it's it, he's put out of his misery, and his nightmares aren't going to kill people anymore. Jesus Christ, you're making me want to watch this show now. I would. I recommend it. I, I do. I totally do. Uh, it's especially the first two seasons. The third season was syndicated. So and 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 the eighties revival. There there are some, you know, effects wise. It's you know kind of wonky because it's cheap. You got you know some. There's some CGI, eighties CGI that doesn't hold up that well. But the writing is really good, and that's what really helps it. There's a there's an episode that Wes Craven directed that I really liked. Um, it's called a. I'm trying. Where where is that one? I need to. I don't know why they didn't list that one. They 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 put that on there, but they didn't. I have the list right here. The Kentucky Rise, a fun one. Uh, Message from Charity, I like that one. It's about this. Uh, there's this uh, young teenager who finds a way to communicate with this this uh, woman in the Puritan age and so he's in the 80s telling her about stuff that's going on in the 80s like airplanes and stuff like that and if she eats something he can taste it he, he sees what she sees she sees what he sees you know there's an interesting sort of connection there I thought that was definitely a pretty 
interesting concept. All right. Well, I would love to continue to talk about um, the Twilight Zone. Then, but- the, then there was a, <laughs> then there was a third revival. There was a, actually it was a second revival. There's they're they're working on maybe thinking about doing a third revival. The third revival wasn't as good. It dealt with uh, it was in 2002, and Forrest Whitaker hosted it. Oh, I don't, I even, I don't even remember UPN. hearing about that. Yeah. Well, all right. And then there's rumors of a third revival. And then there's a movie, which there's an infamous story associated with that. Uh, Star Vic Morrow and a couple uh, child extras, they died when uh, a, a stunt was being filmed with a helicopter that was flying low to the ground. And uh, there's a whole court case that happened and everything. Yeah, uh, that that's and I, I, I highly recommend people who are listening do not look up on YouTube for the the Vic Morrow death. Don't do that. Please, I, I really do not recommend you do that because that will stay with you forever. Oh God! Because there's actually footage of it. And it's it's really intense. And uh, yeah, Twilight Zone the movie is one. There are some good segments. I like the the one with John Lithgow that George Miller directed with the gremlin on the plane. And I like the one that Joe Dante did about some kid with an overactive imagination. I didn't care for the Steven Spielberg segment called Kick the Can because it's just overly schmaltzy, way too sugary sweet. And the first segment with Vic Morrow... It it's it's his death is even more frustrating because it's not like the last thing he ever did was really that good. It was an episode about this. It was a segment about this guy that Rick Morrow played, who was this racist asshole, and then he ends up getting put in all these different scenarios where, like, as if he's a black man, or but you know you don't he only he only sees that if he looks in a mirror or something, or if he's like a, you know he's he's in these situations where he's the one being prosecuted. And he's the one that's being persecuted. Uh, but then... But then... Uh, he ends up getting... Sent off to a concentration camp at the end. Which is really fucked up. Damn. <laughs> well, shit, so, man. I would, yeah. I would love to keep talking about more. Because these are really interesting. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, I gotta go do my karaoke gig. So we're gonna have to wrap this up real quick. And uh, maybe we can continue talking about... Uh, this at some other point because uh, I, I just like even hearing about those stories. It sounds interesting. <laughs> um, you can find me and Mike online by um, searching Facebook groups for Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Join the group. There's awesome stuff in there. Really great people. I think we have one of the best groups on Facebook. I'm willing to put money behind that. Um, not really. Don't actually ask me to do that. Um, you can follow us on Instagram or no, not Instagram. <laughs> Twitter at uh, at uncovering um uncovering um for God's sakes please follow us we need more followers on there um, and uh, you can find me and Mike separately but always equally on uh, YouTube I am youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts um, I do video game reviews music reviews skits sketches vlogs way too much stuff honestly um, my last video was dancing was my Dancing with Ghosts video for The Nightmare Inside You, which is an awesome mu- new music video that we put out. And you can find Mike online at youtube.com slash OCP Communications. He mainly reviews movies. Uh, what was the last thing you reviewed, Mike? Last thing I reviewed, huh. 
Uh, a Quiet Place. Quiet Place. Did you like it? I loved it. Cool. Go go watch that, everybody. But yeah, sorry for the quick uh, outro here, but I just I just noticed that it's uh, 7.37 Eastern Standard Time. I gotta get my ass on the road. So until next time, goodbye. See ya. What's up, everybody? Josh here. Just wanted to let everyone know that my new album, The Nightmare Inside You, is now available on Bandcamp, Spotify, and iTunes. Thank you for any and all support. It means the world to me. wasn't bad enough i come home and then i get a loss on my youtube channel with a fucking stupid copyright strike which i'm sick and tired of getting yeah i saw that and it's for an old video right yeah it's for it's for a rant i did on the mighty kong which is this piece of shit animated king kong movie and once again the video has no copyrighted material in it there's no footage there's no audio there's no anything it's just me sitting in my chair in my room talking about the movie and some guy it manually detects it and sends a copyright strike and a uh, claim you know puts a claim on it now, sends out a takedown notice to YouTube and I know exactly why this is still happening with manual detection because for some reason there's still companies out there that are either stubborn or stupid because their whole plan is to ask the people who they uh, who are employed for their company they're like okay you need to go in and look for any videos on youtube that are violating our copyright look for the title of the movie and movie in the title and there are instances where they'll just 
send out a copyright strike, send out a fucking takedown notice because it has the movie's title and the word movie in the video title. And they don't even watch the fucking video. They don't even watch the video. They don't flip through it. They don't do anything. They just send the fucking strike out. And so then people like me have to deal with that shit and have to try to contact the person who sent out the manual strike. I know this uh, because I've dealt with this multiple times already. And one time I actually did get a hold of a, a guy and he no longer works at this particular company. But he explained to me wh why he did, why things happened the way that they did. Because he was asked to do that. Oh, wow. So you kind of got some insight from the other side. Those people who are always the ones doing the, the, the striking. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. They're stupid fucking companies with really dumb business practices where it's like, it's got movie in the title, it's got the title of our, one of our copyrighted films in it, Strike. Doesn't matter if it, it, it falls under every single line of fair use possible. Well, this isn't and even a fair use thing. This is like literally you're not you're just talking about the damn movie. Like that's I know, but still that's the thing. It, that's what I'm saying. It still if it still falls under fair use, you can talk about a movie, you can do whatever. And what's even more frustrating is the inconsistency. There are videos up on YouTube right now that have clips from that damn movie. And mine is the one that got striked. Well, you never know what <clears throat> other people, you know, are having to deal with with that as well. Like, you, they might be dealing with those copyright strikes, too. You just, you know, don't know it. But it, it wasn't a takedown, though. It was just a strike. No, it's a takedown, too. The video got taken down, oh, and I got damn. a copyright strike. That sucks. Yeah, because that, that hurts your channel. Fuck. That sucks. Yes. Dude, I didn't know it was a takedown. Holy crap. Yeah, for those of you listening, a uh, who give any to any kind of shit about YouTube, uh, a copyright claim is basically a company going, "Hey, you're using our content without permission, so you can't monetize the video." And sometimes the video be will be restricted in some countries, uh, but a a a takedown notice uh, or copyright strike or whatever, that's basically when they go. You are like legit ripping our shit off verbatim without permission. Um, you know, YouTube's already gone ahead and removed the video, and you get a, uh, a strike on your channel. If you get three strikes, your your channel gets deleted. Yeah, it's a very so. it's a very serious thing, <laughs> and it's something that I had to deal with um, back when the John and Terry's uh, Unsolved Mysteries, John Cosgrove and Terry Moore, when their lawyers were uh, contacting me about taking all the shit down for the podcast and rebranding it all. To add insult to injury, I also got a, 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 a takedown on my Unsolved Mysteries um, top 10, uh, my top 10 favorite Unsolved Mysteries segments, which is a video that I still have finished. It is done. It's on my hard drive right now. And literally nobody, I think Mike might have saw it before it got taken down. But it's it's like a perfectly great video. I put all this work into it. No one's ever seen it because it, I'm too afraid to re-upload it because I don't want to get any more. So it's <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of serious business, um, and and it does suck. So I'm sorry that you're going through that. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's just this weight that you constantly have yeah. over you. Yeah, you know it, it's and and it's and especially when you know you didn't really do anything wrong. That's what's so fucking frustrating. I'm sick of this. I sent YouTube a message about it, and they've gotten better at this with uh, YouTube partners. If you're a partner, 
they actually do have ways to contact people directly. And I actually did get a response. And they're like, oh, we're going to forward this to our copyright team. And then they'll look over it and then they'll get back to you. So I'm like, all right, cool. Because <laughs> I'm like, just because I'm trying to get them to understand maybe you could look o- over these claims yourself and see if they're valid before you you hand out a strike. But I know why that doesn't happen. Because when Google bought YouTube, there was this whole fucking thing with Viacom suing them for a billion dollars for copyright infringement. And Google kowtowed and bowed down to the copyright holders and gave them absolute power when it comes to copyright strikes and video takedowns. They basically... All right, you send out a video takedown notice. We'll automatically take the video down and we'll put a strike on somebody's channel. And that's been that way for a decade or longer. And really what should have happened from the start is there should have been a compromise. There should have been something made where, okay, yeah, we'll we'll take your strikes and we'll take your notices, but we'll also have a team double check and make sure that these videos actually do violate copyright. Yeah. So then you don't have instances like this. And it's so easy to do. Flip through the fucking video. If it's just somebody sitting in the room talking about the movie, that's done. You don't even have to watch the entire video. Just scan through the whole thing. Well, YouTube, didn't they supposedly hire like thousands of actual human beings recently to like work for them for for the, these specific purposes to 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 get better at doing this kind of stuff? Like they actually yeah, have human beings. But I mean stuff still stuff still falls through the cracks every now and then. Right. But, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact that they've gotten better with communication because I had like community guideline strikes on a, a review of John Wick Chapter 2 and I got and, and it was just like I got one community guideline strike on it. I got it taken down. You know, I got the video the, you know, back up and the strike taken off. Then I got a, another strike on it on the same video and then I was pissed. And then I contacted YouTube, and they actually responded, and they were like, yeah, we're sorry about that. We don't know why that happened. It's on a list of videos that won't get striked again. So apparently there's a list, which is nice. Uh, That's cool. But yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. So anyway, what's also frustrating is probably listening to us bitch about something oh, this that is, you this don't is, give a shit about. Oh, my, oh my friend, <laughs> this is going to be B-roll footage, make no mistake. I'm not even stressing about it right now, because I already know I'm going to edit a lot of that out. Not all of it, but I'm going to edit some of it out and put it at the end, because, yeah, that's... But, um, 